We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Klaus Badenhagen, who writes about Taiwan for German media. Good evening. And on the telephone by freelance journalist Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. Tonight, we'll be discussing a bad week for the government's environmental and energy policies, more referendum proposals passing review, ideas to clamp down on those who opt for China's new residence permits, and a new Guinness world record, albeit a rather quiet one. But we'll begin with National Day, which took place on an overcast, cold and rather rainy Wednesday of this week. And President Tsai Ing-wen focused on the island's democracy in her double 10-day address, which was aptly titled, Democratic Taiwan Lights Up the World. Now, Tsai said the island's democratic transition remains a beacon in the night for those who long for democracy. And she reiterated her administration's determination to protect Taiwan's free and democratic way of life, to defend sustainable development and to maintain cross-strait peace and regional stability. She also touched on the cross-strait issue, well, a bit more than that, saying that the government will continue to seek to maintain stability in the Taiwan Strait, and she also urged China to be a responsible stakeholder that plays a positive role in the world rather than a trigger for conflict. Now, American Institute in Taiwan chairman James Moriarty said that he believes the most significant aspects of Tsai's National Day address were her commitments to a pragmatic and peaceful cross-strait policy. And speaking to reporters in Washington on Wednesday, Moriarty said that Tsai tried to strike a very positive and yet reserved tone, a tone that he said could open doors, but also indicated that her administration will stick to its principles. However, the KMT wasn't just as happy, and while party heavyweights did attend the day's National Day celebrations outside the presidential office, they also attended a separate KMT National Day event at Taipei's Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hall on that afternoon. Now, the former KMT chairwoman, Hong Shou-ju, told people at the KMT's National Day Bash that her party's ultimate goal remains unification, and she called on voters there to support the KMT's policies during next month's local elections, as in his wo- her words, rather, the DPP government is tearing the country apart, while current KMT chairman Udini told supporters at the event that they must continue to oppose those who support Taiwanese independence and vote against such a move on November the 24th. So, Ralph, we've got a pretty much the same double 10-day address by the president and a separate double 10-day event and some lauding by the head of AIT there, Ralph. Yeah, I listened to the president's speech because it's something we do every year. In fact, we compare them year in and year out to see if there's any change in the sentiment. I was struck by how much of the speech uh, President Tsai dedicated to cross-strait ties and she brought it up really early on. She addressed a lot of the issues that have been sort of uh, percolating in the background about what her critics say and her supporters say. So I thought she came out, you know, well on that, just uh, getting it out of the way, bringing us all up to date. <clears throat> um, and her warning against China is, um, you know, fits in with, her timing is good, too, because the U.S. is putting pressure on China, Japan is putting pressure on China, so her comments fit in real nicely with what's going on geopolitically. Of course, I think some people were waiting and always wondering 
whether she would announce any sort of a new policy toward China, a way of engagement or disengagement or something else, and we didn't quite hear that. Well, definitely it looks like the time for diplomatically glossing over the existing conflicts is over now. I mean, she um, really quite directly um, and, and openly addressed the problems that Taiwan is facing, and she attributed them to China. And so the um, message to the Taiwanese public, I think, is no longer have any illusions about what's going on here. The message to China is we are not going to roll over and play nice anymore. The message to the international public was um, here we are and we are being threatened. So you also see this as quite a sea, cha sea change then compared to last year. I mean, what do you think the public thought of her speech, Ralph? My impressions from speaking to people in the public is that they had heard a lot of it before. That it wasn't too much phenomenally new materials, a bit of recasting and emphasis on certain things and away from other things. I don't suspect that the public is going to take a whole new view of cross-strait relations based on the speech alone. Right. And of course, it's, it's coming. the election is coming up, Klaus. I mean, do you think she wrote the, the speech was geared towards the domestic, the international community as well as the domestic community for the election? Well, every time the president, who also happens to be the chairman of the ruling party, is holding an official speech, I mean, there's bound to be some um, self-lauding and um, self-congratulating involved there. So, um, of course, it, it plays a role in the context of the upcoming elections. It did not um, read to me as if she used this opportunity to turn it into a campaign speech. Unlike the KMT rally or the KMT National Day event outside the Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hall, of course. Well, I was quite surprised to see that they let Hong Xiaoju go on stage and say, "We, you all know we still want unification as our ultimate goal. Even though the public maybe got a little dissatisfied or disillusioned with Tsai and her policies in the two years since she got elected, I don't think the change in public mood has been that big that people are going to embrace this because Tsai ultimately was elected by a large majority on the platform of not uh, one China and um, not talking about unification as a possible option. So I'm wondering if the KMT did themselves a favor with this speech. Ralph? I was surprised as well. I thought the KMT had taken a lesson from its losses in 2014 and especially in 2016 and that they were truly trying to find some new blood, some um, re-architecting of their China policies and that they would not come out and say things like that again because it's just not popular. Right, but they did attend the National Day event, which of course, you know, they, they could have boycotted it like they've done in the past. Well, not attending it would mean abandoning quote, their, unquote, Republic of China to the DPP, which they would not want to do. So it's still the state that the KMT, well, very closely identifies with. So I can understand that they wanted to show presence there. Right. Another interesting thing, no, not, it's, it coincided with National Day. This is a story that appeared on Bloomberg this week, headlined, basically, Death Metal Lawmaker Unleashes Battle Cry on Taiwan National Day, which was, of course, about Freddie Lin, who, well, he's along with being an elected New Power Party member for Taipei's Wanhua District, also happens to be the front man for a well-known death metal band. Now, apparently, the Bloomberg article made great play of how this album by a death metal band was a call to the youth about Taiwan political situations. Well, I didn't listen to it yet. I, I mean, I did have a number of conversations and interviews with Freddie Lin over the last year. 
And um, yeah, they prepared this new studio album a bit uh, undercover-like because since he is elected sitting on the defense committee and all that, um, he's not performing anymore. They're not giving concerts anymore. So they've been working on this album kind of... Well, not secretly, but def definitely um, not publicly. And now they release it just on National Day. So, um, yeah, if if we look at the texts and there are some political messages in there, maybe I didn't I didn't listen to it yet. But I mean, do you think this album is going to appeal to the masses of young people? It could. It depends on how good the music is. <laughs> the fact that he has put out albums or. And I think with, with the political message doesn't really strike me as anything phenomenally new. So I, I imagine the youth here or whoever else is listening will want something fresh musically and lyrically that they simply haven't heard before. Yeah, so the kind of metal, death metal, black metal, whatever that Freddie Lim and Thonic are putting forward, I think if you, if you liked them before, you're going to like this album too, but I don't think they are trying to reach large new audiences with this I mean Ralph what do you think young people make of National Day I mean did you see the did you go to the parade this year I would answer that question in two words day off <laughs> yeah <laughs> very true but, I mean did you do the parade this year Ralph no we have our own secret methods of covering it now which is that the the, the DPP and the president's office are happy to provide circa 2008 style live streaming links to everything that happens so you can not be there and still be there. You can see every dance, every speech. Uh, you can actually get closer to Tsai Ing-wen and Sujachan and the others by not being there because you can see them right at home on your computer, record all the sound, and then process it quickly. We have to file fast sometimes on some of the comments, so you don't want to be trying to thread, thread your way through these crowds of people, get back on the MRT system over by the the hospital somewhere come back home you got to be able to do this quickly so i didn't even go and what were the highlights of this year's event then on via the live updated computer link i thought the highlights were um well okay how do i say this the highlights were that um ty spoke and she was able to bring up china early in the speech i don't think that the preliminary dances and festivals and Uh, the, uh, the the token appearance by indigenous groups and things like that were in any way different from the past. I guess the problem with the live streaming is that they don't show the crowd in the background very often, so it's hard to tell. It's hard to put a you know get your figure out the pulse of who they are, how many, and what they really think. You didn't go then, Klaus. I didn't go. No, the weather was not really for going I didn't have the live stream and I had some private stuff going on so. and Klaus took a day off on National Day oh, there yeah. we go so you were right there Ralph it was a day off for Klaus as well moving on now the government's environmental policies were questioned this week with two of the island's main newspapers running a headline that simply read a black day for Taiwan now that was in reference to the resignation of Deputy Environment Minister Jan Shuanggui and the passing of an environmental impact evaluation concerning a rather controversial proposal by CPC to build a third liquefied natural gas receiving terminal in Taoyuan. Now, Jan's resignation was approved hours after he made his request to step down public on social media. He 
told his Facebook followers that his initial letter of resignation had been ignored for nearly a month. Anyway, Environment Minister Lee Nguyen said that he was reluctant to accept Jan's resignation, hence the delay, and that Jan worked very hard to accomplish many things during his two and a half years in office. Now, Jan, though, has faced criticism from civic groups in recent months since he cast his decisive vote in March, which allowed Thai Power to reopen and expand the coal-fired Shenau power plant in New Taipei. Reports also surfaced this week that Jan was under pressure to support the government's energy policy, and that was one of the reasons he chose to step down. Now, as for the planned LNG terminal at the Guantung Industrial Park, well, that sparked anger this week because President Tsai Ing-wen had promised to make the area an environmental reserve. Now, CPC, which will build and operate the planned LNG terminal, has said that the goals of environmental protection and economic development have been met and the terminal will provide a stable power supply and reduce air pollution. The state refiner also said that the company will adopt a plan to preserve the coastal environment and reduce the impact on the surrounding ecology. However, that explanation fell rather flat in the legislative UN, where Premier William Lai faced angry lawmakers who accused the DPP of once again flip-flopping on its energy policy. So, Klaus, the loss of the Deputy Environment Minister and a new rather questionable energy plan to make a new energy big terminal pollution. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that the government is facing a big conundrum here. On the one hand, they want to get uh, rid of uh, nuclear power, they want to have more renewable energy, but they still need fossil fuel power plants for decades to come. So they say the way to go is this liquefied natural gas because it's comparatively less harmful climate-wise. So they say we need this terminal to um, get it into Taiwan. Um, it would be interesting to look at the actual plants because they say that the previous government wanted to have 230 hectares reserved for this and they um, reduced it to 23 hectares, like to one-tenth of the size. Um, well, it's still going to have an environmental impact. That's still quite a large area. And they also say, oh, we're going to move it 20 or 30 meters away from the actual coastline, so we are going to protect the coastline. Well, if I was an environmental activist, I would still probably not be satisfied with this. I would still ask them to like think harder, come up with a better solution to this, but um, apparently that's not as easy. And coming from Germany, I know that the energy transformation is not as easy as it sounds, and you will run into new problems whichever way you go. This points again to the problem faced by today's government as well as the Ma government, maybe even before that, about how to keep Taiwan's energy supply stable as a net importer of fuel sources uh, while protecting the environment and you have different factions of the public um, including a very increasingly vocal environmentally aware one Um, you know Taiwan needs energy the people want environmental protection they don't want uh, dangerous factories and plants and other things in their backyard so to speak so you got to do both somehow the renewable energy programs um, talked talked up by the Thai government are still, as far as I can tell, sort of um, in their earlier stages, and we can't completely rely on that just yet. So we have to find some way to use coal, oil, nuclear, and the other things that have been around for a while. Um, Taiwan's also a, uh, <clears throat> a small and densely populated island, so what you do with a piece of land is inevitably going to upset people or concern people because you're simply not doing something else with that piece of land and there's not much land around.
Now, I think one of the problems with the LNG terminal was, of course, President Tsai Ing-wen went there in 2013 and said that she would make it a, a great, an ecological area that's untouched by humankind. Yeah, and that's coming back to her now and hitting her in the head like it should be. I mean, <laughs> if you're a politician campaigning, you should be careful about what you say. And if you, if you do the other thing later, then just don't complain about what's happening. People are going to criticize you. Every government so far has had this experience, I think. And um, Ralph, what about the, the resignation of the in Deputy Environment Minister? Um, I don't put too much stock in resignations of people. I, they're, they're usually aimed at proving a political point. In this case, I think you've articulated it well already, what was going on. So he'll leave and they'll replace him with somebody else. Environmental policy won't really see any major changes because of it. What about the Premier Lai saying that basically making a promise that if the uh, gas terminal comes through, then he might be in a position to abandon the coal power plant in Chanel. I mean, linking these two, I don't know if that was a smart move. Like, he's opening everything up for bargaining now, and he's also making... Uh, he's also um, st standing behind something that maybe he will not be able to follow through with, and maybe also open himself up to a lot of criticism later on. I can see that, too. Yeah, he's got to be careful that what he's saying can actually take place, too. It could be a bargaining issue or it could be just uh, what he's saying is too premature to be guaranteed in reality. Or it could But, be a knee-jerk reaction to being put on the spot in the legislative UN the day after his deputy environment minister stepped down, the day after it was a black day for Taiwan appeared in the newspaper. Well, he should be more experienced than just to pull something out of his head like this because he's in a panic in the legislature. I don't see that. It does seem a bit, you know, they go one way, then they go back the other way. That's been one of the complaints about the government, of course. They, they can't seem to make a decision. And such as Taiwan society, perhaps, this is a, a complex, you know, um, a complex place. Lots of opinions, lots of ideas, lots of um, history. The future is always uncertain and all that stuff. So, you know, um, governing, if, I, I think one of the hallmarks of the Thai government is she's really tried to be a consensus builder, but sometimes you can't. Uh, the consensus isn't there and you have to make a decision at some point what you're going to do anyway. Yeah. Makes me think of the report that the International Climate Change Panel just published, where the scientists basically all agree we need to have a huge restructuring of the world economy right now, and if we really want to, it's possible. But then all the politicians are saying, yeah, it, it would be nice, but in the real world, it's not what we can do. So we, um, we know that we, we, we should save the world, we should save the climate, but now there's so many real world uh, problems uh, limiting us here, so we need to go step by step, and then... Well, if something happens, it might be too late. So that's playing out on a minor scale, I think, in Taiwan right now. But it's part of a bigger picture in, in worldwide ecological and energy policies. Right, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these brief commercials. Oh. 
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the Central Election Commission approved more referendum proposals this week. And there's concern that two of them could lead to Taiwan running foul of a near neighbour and a major sporting body. Now, the Commission says a petition calling for a referendum on whether Taiwan should compete in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics under the name Taiwan instead of Chinese Taipei. Well, that guarded enough signatures to be put on the November 24th ballot. Now, the referendum will ask the question, do you agree that Taiwan should use the name Taiwan to participate in the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo and all other international sporting events? which of course would go against the International Olympic Committee's Taiwan policy. And there's also serious concern that if the referendum garners enough support to pass, the island's sportsmen and women could be banned from international sporting events due to world sporting bodies all adhering to the IOC policy that Taiwan compete under the title Chinese Taipei. While the other questionable referendum proposal was on whether the ban on food and agricultural imports from areas of Japan affected by the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant disaster could lead to problems with Tokyo. As a time, of course, this comes along when Taiwan is desperately in need of regional allies to counter China and also seeking to sign trade agreements with neighbouring countries. Now, that referendum was initiated by KMT Vice Chairman Hao Long Bin, and Japan's representative to Taiwan has expressed his regret over the referendum proposal. And in a prepared statement, the head of the Japan-Taiwan Exchange Association in Taipei said that he was disappointed that the food import issue was being used as a political football. So, Klaus, I mean, we've had we've got gay rights referendums, we've got energy referendums, but these two referendums, these could affect Taiwan internationally, of course. Yeah, you think it will confuse voters even more when they're opening their 10 voting ballots and see two of them that stick out? Um, well, okay, talk about the Olympic referendum first. I don't really see the point of what they're trying to achieve with this. I see the sentiment behind it. I can understand that people feel frustration and maybe it's also part of the um, resilience that Tsai mentioned in her National Day speech that Taiwanese are not willing to shut up and take it anymore. But um, the government actually cannot force the national IOC to change its name or to change the way they apply to international sporting events. It's not a government organization. They are supposed to operate independently. And I think if the government directly tries to interfere with the National Olympic Committee, then there will be some blowback from the IOC there. So apart from getting attention for their cause, what are they actually trying to achieve with this referendum? Yeah, I had a couple of thoughts on that. Um, I'm, a, I guess, a big supporter of referenda. It gives the public anywhere a, a, a better way to express themselves um, in, in, in addition to or sometimes instead of electing people to make decisions for them. This is a chance for them to come out and say stuff. Um, I hope that the problem with referenda is that sometimes the voters don't understand exactly what they're getting into, what some of the legal consequences are of their votes. And as you mentioned, in the case of the 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 name that Taiwan uses to join sporting events that could be that could end up disqualifying athletes as you mentioned so if people are still aware of that and they vote yes to change the name to something closer to Taiwan or ROC or whatever they like then it could you know it sends a strong signal that the the uh, national image and so forth are more important than sports and then the uh, the government here and the IOC and so forth would need to 
take that into account um, on the referendum involving Japanese products. I don't think that will have any major impact on Japan-Taiwan relations. It seems like a purely commercial customs import-export type of thing, and um, it just it, it might just stimulate Japan to be all the more careful in what it makes. Well, it does smell a lot of playing on old anti-Japanese sentiments that the KMT has been prone to. Like from time to time, when they get in a tough spot, they when it, it, it there was a time when it was about the Yaoyutai uh, Islands, and um, so from time to time, the KMT is prone to resorting to anti-Japanese uh, populism. I think, and if I remember rightly, then this referendum subject was one that was already being pushed forward, like. Um, Many years ago, like at least 2016, they started, and maybe it has been overtaken by other events right now in the public consciousness, but they still kept pushing it through. So now we are going to have the referendum, even though not really a lot of people care about this question right now anymore. That, that, that stemmed from the government, of course, or reports that the government was considering lifting the ban on food products from these places. Yeah, that was, I think, in the early months of the Tsai administration mm. that, that popped up, and now it has stayed with us ever since. But, I mean, obviously, Japan has also turned around and say, you know, you can't, you, you, you ban the food, but please make the reason you ban it scientific. Yeah, also the ta Japanese envoy to Taiwan made a statement where he quite strongly called out and criticized the KMT, which did not sound so diplomatically. I mean, considering that um, maybe two years from now, the Japan is having to deal with the KMT government again. So they they came out quite strongly against that. And, of course, millions of Taiwanese tourists go to Japan on a yearly basis. So, obviously, people in Taiwan, yeah, people that, from Taiwan would have eaten food from the Fukushima area. Yeah, that was one of his arguments, right. Yeah, so maybe the KMT could also hand out leaflets warning tourists to Japan not to drink the local water while they are collecting the signatures, I know. I think that appeal from the, the envoy here would be more aimed at, I, I'm hoping it's more aimed at sort of... Um, Taiwanese habits that, you know, when it comes to health and safety decisions, they get, they react on fear. They move on fear instead of on science. You can see that with... Rectopamine. Yeah, rectopamine, the beef, and even things like face masks and neck towels and whatever else is going on out there now. It's just, there's very little medical or scientific proof behind a lot of things that motivate consumer behavior. Mm. Anyway, we'll move away from referendums and move on to, well, issues about China. And the Mainland Affairs Council this week said that it had no immediate plans to automatically revoke the voting rights or household registrations of Taiwanese nationals who opt to be issued with one of China's new residence permits. But Council Minister Chen Ming-Tong did say that people who received the permits will have to declare their Chinese residence status with authorities here in Taiwan. And if they fail to do so, they could still see some of their rights revoked. Now, the council says that it's still discussing ways to possibly penalise Taiwan nationals who fail to declare their residence permit status in China, but they have hinted that they could lose their political participation rights, meaning they could be banned from running for office or taking a civil service position. So, Klaus, do you think, again, we go back to the Chinese new residence permits, and do you think the government should be penalising people who get them, or do you think it should be treated maybe like a, a local person that has a green card in America. Well, I think if they decide to somehow penalize them, then they should move quickly before too many Taiwanese have already um, applied for these new permits. Because 
That was also quite interesting. The Managed Affairs Council also gave an official number of the number of Taiwanese living in China. They said it's 400,000. So, you know, there's always been vague numbers like one million, more than one million, half a million. So now we have a number 400,000. Okay. And I think right now about 20,000 of them apparently already have applied for this permit. That's already quite a large number. But if that number becomes like 100,000, 150, 200,000 people, and you, after the fact, are penalizing 200,000 Taiwanese citizens and maybe taking away their voting rights, then it becomes a, a huge problem because um, a lot of people will feel they're being treated unfairly then. So whatever they want to do, how they want to react to this, um, if they want to start with penalizing measures, they better start soon or too many people will already have applied for it. I agree with that, that analysis. And I also doubt that Taiwan will go forward with any terribly stringent restrictions or punishments against people who take the permits from China because the whole idea that the government has advanced is that people should stay here and that investing here, working here, studying here is better than going to the other side. So if you're going to punish people for going there, then it it almost locks in or consecrates their, their decision to, to make that move and it makes them feel perhaps more welcome in China than they would be here. Also, I mean, it, China can at any time decide to make this new kind of residence permit. Um, they, they said that everybody needs to apply for it. Every Taiwanese living in China needs to apply for this kind of permit. Right now, it's, it's voluntary or it's limited to those who are staying there long term, but it would be no problem for them to say, just like everybody needs the uh, Tai Bao Zhang, they could also say um, everybody needs to apply for this, and then Taiwan will just have to deal with that situation. And I believe that China will probably make it really easy for them to get it because they've, throughout the course of the year to date, even before that, they have done multiple things to make it easier than ever for Taiwanese to move over there for work, study, and investment. So I doubt it will be anything that, that makes their lives harder when they're in China. But do you think Beijing could penalise ROC nationals that don't get this card? Of course. Why would they? Well, but they could. I mean, if they... If if they say it's um, everybody needs to have it, and then some people say no, I don't. Of course, they would have a multitude of ways to to penalize them for it, giving them trouble, doing business, um, living their daily life in China. So um, maybe having them report to the police station regularly. I don't know. So yeah, they they could come up with all kinds of stuff if they want to. They could come up with a lot of things, and they've done that with. Um with you know foreigners like the, the three of us who if we were to go over there and try to get permits then it would be a lot more of a hassle than i believe it is for the taiwanese so yes they could but i don't think they would because the whole the political mission behind this program if you will is to make it easier to work in china to make it more attractive to make it a better option than than staying in taiwan so if they make it hard then Presumably some people who think about going would think again and decide not to. And before we go this week, owners of Gogoro electric scooters here in Taiwan set a Guinness World Record this past weekend when they staged what was termed as a quiet flash mob on the Taipei Bridge. Now, some 1,303 owners gathered at a park in New Taipei's Sanjong District before heading across said Taipei Bridge and down Minchuan West and East Roads to highlight zero emissions and low noise. Now, the event was organised by owners of Gogoro electric 
scooters through social media. Now, apparently, some 500 Gogoro owners held a very similar event this year, or last year, rather, except this year there was over a 1,000 of them and they got in the Guinness Book of Records. Now, reports say there are reportedly more than 100,000 Gogoro owners across Taiwan at the moment. So, Klaus, a quiet little get-together of electric scooter owners there. Yeah, sounds better than a get-together of um, roaring, noisy petrol scooters, doesn't it? I mean, now, walking on the street now, I mean, more and more often you do hear this sound of coming from behind and you turn around already knowing that you're going to see a go-go coming there. So it is, I mean, the number being sold is still minuscule in comparison to all the petrol scooters, but it does become a more and more common sight on the streets, at least my impression here in Taipei. The post office uses them now. Awesome. Some yeah. postal service deliverers use yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. electric vehicles are great for short distance um, stops, starting and stops. Yeah, perfect. So, Ralph, do you own a Gogoro? No, I own a bicycle, and I have enough trouble to <laughs> together. Never mind. That sounds even nicer, though. Yeah, it has its, has its um, ups and downs. But I talk about missing the, the National Day speech. I'm really sorry I missed this um, quiet sit-in or whatever it is it's called because I'd, like, I'd rather see that. I, um, it's not something you hear about very often, and as you just mentioned, it um, promotes the idea of, of clean energy clean air, uh, getting away from the petrol scooters, so happy to hear about it. Any plans to buy a GoGro, though? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I, if I had a scooter license in Taiwan and I wanted to ride a scooter, I would seriously consider it, because I, th- I think it, it's turning into a real success story. When GoGro started three, four years ago, they had kind of a tough start. They... Um, their they, they, they were, PR was not so good. They, they were too expensive. They needed to reduce prices right away, and people are not really sure what to make of them. But um, in many respects, like you, like the U-bike system, um, it stuck around. It ex- it expanded, and it's um, nearing a point where it becomes more and more indispensable for a lot of people. I think they're doing some things really well. Company decision making. Apparently, GoGro is big overseas. I believe they have them in Berlin or Paris, yeah, in a couple of European but cities. Only as um, rental scooters, and um, they don't put up the battery exchange stations. So they need to drive around and change the batteries themselves. So it's not comparable to what's going on in Taiwan. Taiwan is right now still the only market where they've really rolled out this system the way it's supposed to be. I think Gogoro is going to end up being quite successful in the years ahead overseas as well as here. And perhaps as we, if we speak five or ten years from now, we can look at this as being a, a really good shining example of a Taiwanese company that made it big overseas along with the the tech giants that we all know about from the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, it's, it's like the prime example for what Taiwan is trying to promote, like um, establishing their own brands, not only doing OEM, but being successful in international markets, cutting-edge technology, and um, being innovative. So it's it's um, the best poster, poster child right now they could think of. Right, and that's where we'll leave it this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Klaus Badenhagen. It was a pleasure, as always. And on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. 
Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.